Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and I am so glad that you joined us tonight because we are going to be talking about some deliciously reformed theology, the theology of unconditional election. Now, Dr. R.C. Sproul is going to give a lecture on unconditional election, and then there's going to be the discussion. The discussion happened two months ago, all the way back on March 12th, I think. And on March 12th, a group of men gathering together in the Lewis County area with the common vision of exploring whether or not a Reformed church should start in the area. We all got together and we discussed this very, very important doctrine. We are going to be meeting on a more regular basis now that the whole coronavirus fear is starting to subside and and that's starting to go away. We're going to be meeting on a more regular basis again. Um, But tonight's discussion, going all the way back from March 12th, is on unconditional election. Uh, We'll be continuing to meet, and if you would like to join us, if you would like to explore the vision of planting a Reformed church in the Lewis County area, Centralia, Chehalis, and the surrounding hamlets, if you will, we would love to have you join us. And you can find out um, when and where we meet by simply reaching out to me via SoundCloud, via, via the, the, our website, uh, or the website that this is being posted on, joestout.org, or you can even email me at joestout at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I hope you enjoy this discussion on unconditional election, and we'd love to have you join us for our vision to plant the good word in the Lewis County area through a Reformed church. Now, I hope that you enjoy this lecture on unconditional election by Dr. R.C. Sproul. Ulysses S. Grant, who was the head of the Union forces in the war between the states and later became the President of the United States, received the nickname during his military career based upon his initials, U.S. Grant, of unconditional surrender grant because when he defeated the enemy he would not allow for uh, a negotiated peace that meant acquiescing to certain conditions and so we have this concept of that which is unconditional and so in the acrostic tulip the U stands for unconditional Election. It's another one of those terms that I think can be a little bit misleading, and I prefer simply to use the term sovereign election, but that totally destroys our tulip. And not only is it now rulip, but it becomes zulip and doesn't quite work. Well, what are we talking about when we use the term unconditional election? It doesn't mean that God will save people no matter whether they come to faith or not come to faith. There are conditions that God decrees for salvation, not the least of which is putting one's personal trust in Christ. But that is a condition for justification, and the doctrine of election is something else. It's related to the doctrine of justification, but when we're talking about unconditional election, we're talking in a very narrow confine here of the doctrine of election itself. The question at this point becomes then, on what basis does God elect 
to choose or elect to save certain people? Is it on the basis of some foreseen reaction, response, or, or activity of the elect? That is, many people who have a doctrine of election or predestination look at it this way, that from all eternity God looks down through the corridors of time and he knows in advance who will say yes to the offer of the gospel and who will say no. And on the basis of this prior knowledge, those whom he knows will meet the condition for salvation, that is, of expressing faith or belief in Christ, knowing that there are those who will meet that condition, on that basis then he elects to save them. So conditional election means that God's electing grace is distributed by God on the basis of some foreseen condition that human beings exercise uh, themselves. Whereas the Reformed view is called unconditional election, meaning by this that there is no foreseen action or condition met by us that induces God to decide to save us. But that election rests upon God's sovereign decision to save whomsoever he is pleased to save. Now, we turn to Paul's letter to the Romans to the ninth chapter, where we find a discussion of this difficult concept. Where in Romans 9, beginning at verse 10, we read this, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. Here in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is giving his exposition of the doctrine of election. He had dealt with it significantly in the 8th chapter, and now he is illustrating his teaching of the doctrine of election by going back into the past of the Jewish people and looking at the circumstances surrounding the birth of twins, Jacob and Esau. And in the ancient world, it was customary that the firstborn son would receive the inheritance or the patriarchal blessing. But in the case of these twins, God reverses the process and gives the blessing not to the elder, but to the younger. And the point that the apostle labors here is that this decision 
is not with a view to anything that they had done or would do. The point is, is that the decision is not only made prior to their birth, that would be manifestly obvious, but what Paul labors here is that it is not with a view to their doing any good or evil, but Paul uses this illustration to show that the purposes of God might stand, so that it does not rest on us, but it rests solely on the gracious, sovereign decision of God. Now, in verse 14, we read these words, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Or other translations read, God forbid, and still others, by no means. Now, I find it fascinating that Paul raises this rhetorical question immediately after setting forth his metaphor of the birth of Jacob and Esau and the preference of God for one rather than the other without a view to their works. I remember when I was a seminary student and deeply struggling over the doctrine of election, as most seminary students do, and there was just something that didn't fit with me. It didn't sit right at all to think that God dispenses his saving grace to some and not to others, and that the reason for giving some salvation and not to others doesn't rest in us, but solely in the determinate grace of God. That bothered me, because my initial response was, this just doesn't seem to be fair. And I thought, how can this be fair that God would choose to save some and not others? Now, I understood that nobody deserved salvation in the first place. And I know that if God would let the whole human race perish, he would be perfectly just so to do. And I also understood by then that the only way we could ever be saved at all was somehow by the grace of God. But I certainly didn't think it rested this heavily on the grace of God. And I thought, why would God give his grace to some people in a greater measure than he would to others? just didn't seem fair to me. And as I struggled with it and read Edwards and the other Reformed theologians, I still wasn't convinced and I had a little card I had on my desk in seminary and it said this, you are required to believe and to preach what the Bible says is true, not what you would like it to say. It's the truth, and that put some restraints on me because I read this passage every conceivable way, and I knew that there were people who said, well, Paul's not really talking about the election of individuals here. He's talking about the benefits of salvation that were given to the Jews rather than the Arabs, and he's talking about nations that are chosen, not individuals. That didn't persuade me for five minutes because he, even if he were talking about nations, he illustrates it by the individuals who are at the head of that nation, so no matter how you slice it, you're still back down here wrestling with one person receiving a blessing from God and the other person 
not, and it's based ultimately on the good pleasure of God himself, and it still seemed not right. Now, I've written lots of books, and I've taught lots of courses, and I know that when I set a thesis forth, that if I've done that often enough, you have enough practice that you can almost anticipate, or you can anticipate, not almost, but altogether anticipate the objections or the questions that people will immediately raise to a certain thesis. And at this point, at least, one of the few points I can identify with the Apostle Paul as a teacher is here, because the Apostle, when he was setting forth this doctrine, anticipated a response or a question. He no sooner spells out the sovereign grace that is given to Jacob over Esau, that he stops and says, what then? Is there unrighteousness in God? And one of the things that persuaded me that the Reformers had it right with respect to election was contemplating this very question. Because I thought like this, I thought, if Paul is trying to teach a semi-Pelagian or Arminian view of election by which, in the final analysis, a person's election is based upon that person meeting some kind of condition. So that in the final analysis, it's on you and what you have done, and this person hasn't done it. Who would raise any objection about that's being unfair? Who would possibly raise an objection about that being uh, involving an unrighteousness and God, in God? That would seem manifestly uh, fair. And I'm sure that people who teach Arminianism or semi-Pelagianism and articulate their views on this matter, they have certain questions that come to them all the time that they have to answer and they have to respond to just like anybody else. But I wonder how often people protest against their teaching by saying, that's not fair. I doubt if they've ever heard that. Well, wait a minute. This means that God is unrighteous. But the apostle does anticipate that response. And what is the teaching that engenders that response? It is the teaching that election is unconditional. It's when you're teaching that election rests ultimately, exclusively, on the sovereign will of God and not of the performance or actions of human beings that the protest arises. And so Paul anticipates the protest. Is there unrighteousness in God? And he answers it with the most emphatic response he can muster in the language. I prefer the translation, God forbid. Then he goes on to amplify this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So here the apostle is reminding people of what Moses had to declare centuries before. Namely, that it is God's divine right to execute executive clemency when and where he so desires, so desires it. He says from the beginning, I will have mercy 
on whom I will have mercy. Not on those who meet my conditions, but upon those whom I am pleased to bestow the benefit. Now, I like to draw a picture on the blackboard of a group of stick figures and uh, representing people. And these people represent the masses of the human race. And I'll put six, fix, six stick figures on the board. And I'll put a circle around three of them and another circle around the, th uh, the other three. And I said, let's let, let's let the one circle represent the people who receive this unspeakable gift of divine grace in election. And the other circle represent those who do not. And ask the question, if God chooses sovereignly to bestow his grace on some sinners and withhold his grace from other sinners, is there any violation of justice in this? If we look at those who do not receive this gift, do they receive something they do not deserve? Of course not. If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? Of course not. One group receives grace. The other receives justice. No one receives injustice. And God, like a, a governor in a state, can allow certain criminals who are guilty to have the full measure of their penalty imposed against them. But the governor also has the right to pardon to give executive clemency, as he declares, so that that person who receives clemency receives mercy. The other, that, and, and if the governor commutes one person's sentence, does that mean he's obligated to do it for everybody else? By what rule of, of justice? By what rule of righteousness? Is that so? Not at all. Paul is saying there is no injustice in this because Esau didn't deserve the blessing in the first place, and he doesn't get the blessing. God hasn't been unfair to Esau. Well, Jacob didn't deserve the blessing either, and he does get the blessing. Jacob receives blessing. Esau receives the justice. And then nowhere in there is an injustice perpetrated. But why is that? What is the purpose for that? Well, Paul then comes to verse 16. And this is a very important verse in Romans 9. He begins it with this word, so. This is kind of like the word therefore. He's coming to a conclusion. And he says, so. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now you would think when Paul speaks as emphatically and clearly as he does here, when he declares, it is not of him who wills or of him who runs. You would think that that would end 
all of the debates and all of the discussions and all of the theories and all of the doctrines that in the final analysis makes election conditional on the one who wills. But Paul demolishes human will as the basis for God's sovereign election. The only basis I can find according to the scripture is that yes, salvation is based upon will. And yes, it is based upon free will. Now I'm confusing everybody. But it is based upon the will and the free will of a sovereign God who elects, as Paul teaches elsewhere, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, if you ask me why I came to faith and why I am in the kingdom and my friends aren't, I can only say to you, I don't know, but this much I do know. It's not something I did to deserve it. It's not some condition that I met in my flesh. The only answer I can give is the grace of God. And you ask me, why does he give that grace to me and not to somebody else? And if I begin to give an answer that suggests that it was something good in me that he perceived, I would no longer be talking about grace. I would be talking about some good thing that I did that was the basis for God to elect me. But I don't have anything like that to offer. If the Bible teaches anything over and over and over again, it is that salvation is of the Lord. And this, yes, is at the heart of Reformed theology, not because we're interested in an abstract question of sovereign predestination and that we just enjoy the intellectual titillation that speculation on this doctrine engenders, but rather the focal point in this theology as it was in the T of total depravity, going back to Augustine, is on grace. But the accent here removes all merit from me, all dependence of my, on my righteousness for my salvation, and puts the focus back where it belongs on the unspeakable mercy and grace of God who has the sovereign, eternal right to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, so that it is not of him who wills, except of the divine will, not of him who runs, but of God. That's where the accent is in the Reformed doctrine of election. He has this cadence that you can tell he's starting to wrap up. Yeah, so, right. yep. The preacher cadence? <laughs> yeah, the preacher cadence. Let's pray. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the worship team just magically appears. That's right. <laughs> In this case, he just turns that radio on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a pretty good explanation, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't looked at this stuff as close as probably you guys. But uh, I, I like it. I mean, it just makes good sense. I like how he highlighted, just like he did last week, 
in the total depravity doesn't mean like you're as bad as you possibly could be. Unconditional election doesn't mean that there are no conditions on it. It just means that there's no conditions that you bring. <laughs> you know, there's nothing that God's waiting for or ex- uh, shall we say expecting even like, okay, as long as you keep your end of the bargain, then I'll keep my end of the bargain. It's, there's no bargaining. It's he's going to have mercy on who he will have mercy on. And that, that doesn't mean that there isn't a very clear response that we give, but the response that we give to God's sovereign election is a response that we can only give if he is, if he is, unconditionally elected us. It's a response that only exists in our hearts if he's put it there. So let me ask a question of uh, Les, Andrew, and Ron. In your your, uh, body of believers, uh, would this be a hard thing or would they kind of agree with this in majority or 50-50 or not at all or... I think fundamentally they would agree with it. Um, I know there might be some nuance on when, uh, like when R.C. was talking about the reference Paul's making to individuals versus nations. I know there may be some uh, folks in that regard that may think along the lines of um, Follow, you know, thinking that Paul is making a reference to the nations and not individuals. I don't happen to subscribe to that. Um, you know, something you might hear like Norm Geisler talk about. Um, you may hear that, but fundamentally, no, they, you know, they're they would agree with that. What's what's being said here? Yeah, because they they hear it. I know they hear it from me a lot. Mm. So my thirty seconds is up. I think. You're on, Andrew. Uh, one time I, one time I uh, led worship when the pastor was gone, and I had chosen to introduce a song, which is always really dangerous, right? Singing a song. See, no, a song. Just, oh, I, just I, a I, song. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my Lord, I did not choose you for that. Could never be. My heart would still refuse you if you had not chosen me. Uh, it's an older hymn, and yeah. uh, anyway, I sang that, um, and I got some people that came up. That was fantastic. Thank you. You know, that's mm-hmm. awesome. And I got some people like, hey, what the talk to you about that. Yeah. Um, so it was a mixed bag, which, sure. I mean, if that's kind of an indication, I've never actually sat down and, and chatted with people about this specifically. Um, I think that if I were, maybe the response would be something to the effect of how, how does this play into my salvation? In, in, in a very in a very meaningful terms of if I do not believe this, am I still saved? If I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so that would be the response. Yeah. The, maybe the response that you would get as a retort of if I'm struggling with this, should I be concerned about my salvation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and so and so from that, I, you ask, well, is this an open-handed issue or a closed-handed issue? Now I am in Les's camp here. Where I would say that absolutely, I've you know I've I've read and Romans nine is I think one of the most clear passages. That and I would also say the opening of Ephesians is really pretty clear on yeah. on this matter as well. In John six and John. Uh, oh yeah, well I. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there there's yeah there there's some statements that our Lord makes 
too mm. that are pretty clear on it as well. Yeah, so John Sinks mm. is a yeah is a great one too. Yeah. So uh, I had the opportunity not to digress too much, but I did have the opportunity to listen to uh, a church going through the Book of Ephesians that very clearly does not mm. ascribe to this kind of thinking. Um, it's actually very recent here too. In fact, I could, if you're interested in hearing what that site has to say, um, boy, was it a struggle to get through chapter one. Uh, I did not, they, they did not handle it very well. And I tried to be gracious and listen to the whole sermon and the context of it, not trying, trying to be judgmental, but is there some exegetical jujitsu going on? <laughs> no, actually, it was just just straight up, uh, just straight up the, the argument. Well, God is talking about nations, so how do you feel about that? And, and it was almost literally phrased like that. And then we're just gonna move on. And and there was also some, uh, yeah, I, I guess you could call it that. But it was almost more a, a definition replacement when mm. God is saying yeah. predestined. He is actually saying that you are predestined once you have accepted, hmm. which that doesn't make any sense. Right. That just means that you were destined. I, I don't know. I don't know how to, I, sure. I, I, was, I was having some trouble with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and election was more of purpose, which hmm. I then would argue, okay, well, if I can do that, if it's a game of semantics, then can I just go through every time hmm. I see the word election and replace it with the word purpose hmm. and come up with the same meaning in the sentence, I would really struggle with that. But anyway, so yeah. So, but for our church, yeah, I think it's a bit of a 50-50, and I think that they, the retort would be, is it important to my, fundamentally important to my salvation? Am I still saved if I don't believe that tenet? Hmm. Sorry, Luke. <laughs> hey, you, do you want to skip me? Uh, well, just for now, because then I want to go straight to Joe. Okay. I've got, that's why I got the I don't really have a, I don't have a church, you know, to claim to anyway. I know it. So. <laughs> but OCRC would subscribe to that, right? Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. <laughs> Being a Christian reformed church, right. you would think so. What, no. what, what about you, Ron? Would, would this be a tough thing for the Presbyterians? I don't know. Yeah, I've been a member for about 10 years. The church is 160 years old. And I would guess that in the early years, it got straightforward reformed preaching. But today it does not. Mm. Uh, and I worry about that. I worry about certain people. We've got a lot of new members in the last six months. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't come in from a reformed background, they don't have a clue what they're in. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, without sound teaching, which in my opinion they're not getting, they'd, they'd struggle with it. A lot of them would. Uh, some of the older ones probably wouldn't. Right. I would say in, at OCRC, there's probably still a majority that, that hold and mm-hmm. ascribe to this, this belief in the Bible. And there's an ever larger growing number of people, though, that have no clue. Yeah. They're just there because they like people yeah. and the location or the worship music mm. and that's about it and they have no clue what reformed theology even means yeah it's just just part of the name yeah yeah and then what I was going to ask you Joe is kind of along the same line uh, actually I was going to include Luke in it too though so if you had a reformed church that you went to would it be fairly well ascribed to these thoughts in generally speaking and Luke kind of addressed it well it, you, uh, 
And so you're wrong a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, it needs to be, I would say it needs to be unequivocally comfortable with that line of thinking. Now, does every sermon have to be Simran or I'm Romans yeah, sure. 9? No, for sure not. Definitely not. Much more than that. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, and, and there is. There's so much more than that. Yeah. Um, but, but this thinking would need to permeate through your hermeneutic for how you mm. approach Scripture. Mm. Because if, if your hermeneutic is not that God is actually sovereign, you're not just paying lip service to the sovereignty of God, but you actually believe He's sovereign, then, then you are seeing a God that we're not seeing. You know, you're seeing a God that yeah. is somehow, somewhere morally bound to our decision or to our will or to our... And I, I'm, one of the arguments that R.C. made that I thought was absolutely fantastic was the idea that it's the Arminians, it's the Arminian idea, which is, let's just call the kind of evangelical light view that thinks about fairness, that thinks about like, hey, how is that fair? That's not fair. And, and, and so we come up with a theology that is very fair. Well, it's your choice. You know, it was all up to you. God's not going to force his, his, uh, you know, his, his love on you. He wants you to choose him. And, and it's, and if you don't choose him, then that's on you. And it's like, well, what RC is saying is that in Romans, uh, in Romans nine there in verse 14, Paul anticipates the argument. How is that fair? And he's like, is there any unrighteousness with God? Of course there is. And how, you know, God forbid there be any unrighteousness with God. Mm-hmm. And then goes on to defend why it's not a, an issue of fairness. Uh, and, and of course, as R.C. pointed out there, both parties, both Esau and Jacob, are being treated fairly. Mm-hmm. They're being treated very fairly. And if we were all treated like Esau, we'd be being treated fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't get the, how is that fair argument with the semi-Pelagian or the Arminian Theology, and I thought that was an excellent uh, point to highlight, which I'd never thought of. Yeah. This, I mean, that, I, th- I think it's good that R.C. at least, you know, is able to admit that, hey, even in, in seminary, you know, he was struggling with this too. Mm. You know, that idea of how can this be? Mm-hmm. And I think if I think back to when I was growing as a Christian, learning what I really believed about the Bible, like this Romans 9 not just Romans 9, but Romans 9 mm-hmm. especially, you know, 8 and 9 and mm-hmm. you know, beyond, was just like pivotal. Yeah. It just cemented it. It was like, whoa, okay, this is so clear. Mm-hmm. And yeah, immediately when you tell me, Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated? I'm wondering, but how is that? <laughs> how is that being, you know, right. how is God right in that? Right. And then boom, there's your answer. It's sure. like right there. Yeah. You know, it, you know, that you just can't, that's God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the Holy Spirit, you know, right. just uh, knowing our human condition and knowing what we're going to think yes. and providing the answer to us right there clear as day. Ar- Arminianism makes far more psychological sense uh, if, if you're looking to persuade someone, if you're looking to say, hey, you know, um, you know, if you're the salesman saying, hey, I need you to make this decision now and all I need is your credit card, that kind of thing. It makes a lot more sense to put the choice in the person of the hearer, but that's not how God works. God doesn't want us to come to him as uh, with the idea that we have earned our way, you know. And I, and I think that's, in Romans 9 highlights one, one area of Jacob and Esau, but you've got Isaac and Ishmael, you've got both of Joseph's sons, you've got Joseph himself, you've got David. These are all younger sons that, that shouldn't have 
been given any preference. They weren't the firstborn. They weren't the biggest, the strongest. You think about David being crowned king. He was he was completely kind of forgotten in the whole choosing of the king. Yeah. Um, God in, preferring in, Abel's sacrifice. Exactly. To the older brother and the second Adam versus the first Adam. Yeah. So, um, it, it seems that God is telling us, what you bring to me, what you have to offer me, I'm not going to take that into consideration in terms of election, in terms of predestination. Mm-hmm. That, it doesn't, that doesn't factor in to my calculations. Yeah. And, you know, with what Luke was saying, I think, for me, uh, one of the things I came to understand as I got more and more familiar with the Bible was, you know, there's portions of the Bible that are absolutely clear, there's, there really is no room for the gymnastics or jujitsu or whatever you want to call it, i.e., you know, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's just so straightforward. And I think that can be sometimes the most difficult portion of the Word of God because you can't bend, you can't flex, you can't do an end around or anything. Mm-hmm. Jesus says this, and that's, you know, you look at it and you have to be you'd have to be in such denial, you know, like Paul says, you know, unbelievers, they don't, they don't deny the truth, they don't evade the truth, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, you know? And so when I see a passage like that, and then you get to Romans 9 and you go, I don't know how anybody else, I don't know how anybody can see this differently, but therein I think sometimes can lie the problem because it does, it does affect our, humanness and, our, and the carnal desire for autonomy and the mm-hmm. carnal desire to want to be in control and, and not be have to submit and all this you know it hits our pride exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. yeah we start out in the garden and Satan tempts us to determine for ourselves right mm-hmm. and wrong good and evil mm-hmm. so we get to Israel conquering the promised land and most of those nations they massacred men, women, and children. Hmm. We, we can't accept that if we're God. Hmm. And that's the way most unbelievers in particular and believers struggle with it too. Um, so, so that conflict between the sovereignty of God and our sovereignty gets really powerful at times. <laughs> and uh, yeah. the fruit of it is that we want to Earn our salvation. Do we, our do we, have, do we have sovereignty, though? Do yeah. we have sovereignty? Do, no. Oh, okay. No. okay. I just want to he's saying, he's saying no. But the point I, is okay. that we want to believe we do. I, okay, yeah. yes, sir. Yeah, okay. hey, you're still a brother. Not excommunicated yet. I was kind of thinking about what you were saying, um, and something clicked in my mind about. How, how do you trust a God fully if he is not totally sovereign? Mm-hmm. I think this mm-hmm. comes down to an issue of if God is fully trustworthy and he is 100% faithful to his promises, he needs to be in complete control. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, autonomous things can impede his, again, can work against his will. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know how a semi-Pelagianist deals with God keeping his promises, uh, apart from this sort of looking down the core, like R.C. talked about, looking down the corridor of time and going, okay, 
I know that these people are going to choose to do these things, so mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of work around that. But you're, he's still flexing his own will mm-hmm. or bending his own will in favor of looking down the corridor of time. And so to, to me, that doesn't, that doesn't right. seem to reconcile very well. Um, the trusting aspect. Right. Yeah. If God isn't totally sovereign, he can't be totally in control. Exactly. Right. And then he can't be totally trusted. Yes. And, and, that's, and it's always been such an unsatisfactory response when anything happens that we prefer didn't happen. When, peop- when Christians' response are, well, that wasn't really God's will. You know, that... that mm-hmm. it's, oh, the, it's, the natural disaster. The natural disaster strikes. People say, well, that wasn't God's will. God didn't cause that. That's, that's merely a result of sin. And then it's kind of like, so wait, God couldn't have stopped it if he wanted to? It's like, what kind of God... Or is this like a demagogue that we're actually following? Somebody who's just like a little bit more powerful than us or he's just figured things out a little bit more than us and but he doesn't really have that much control it it it's so unsatisfying to and this is maybe this is just a psychological argument but it's filled with scripture back it up is it's so unsatisfying to think about serving a god like totally trusting a god who is fallible or who is somehow not sovereign you know who is not kind of you know immutable and unchangeable and and has his plan, and that plan will be accomplished. And you can be a willing participant or an unwilling participant, but the plan doesn't change. Mm-hmm. I mean, God is God sovereign over evil? Is he? Mm-hmm. Of course he is. You know, Joseph told his brothers, well, you meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm-hmm. You know, God will be glorified whether, whether it's by us um, worshiping him and glorifying him or us being corrected by him. He will be. He will be glorified, mm. and um, yeah, who, who, you know, I, 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 I remember when I was a young man, I went through a humanities class, you know, a couple times, and um, reading about reading the Greek gods and the Roman gods and the mythology and stuff, and you know, just just a group of knuckleheads uh, and a bunch of capricious bodies who just fought and did all that, mm-hmm. and you know, you you come, you know. You end up on Mars Hill, and you go, there, there's God, mm-hmm. and how could I even consider worshiping any, yeah. any other false thing than this mm. true living God? He yeah. deserves it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no matter what happens, right. he's still good, and he's always going to be still good. Yeah. What, uh, Usually on Saturday nights we'll we'll sit down and we'll um, have a, a Sabbath meal and we kind of will we'll take Saturday night to kind of begin the Lord's Day kind of our Lord's Day celebration. Then we end it the next the next day at at uh, sundown. But we usually will start off with Psalm ninety two, which is a psalm or a song for the Sabbath day. Um, and in it, it's I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verse six and seven says um, a brutish or this is King James, so a stupid man doesn't know. It says, O Lord, how how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A stupid man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up as grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it's for one reason. It says, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. It's like they are being, just like Pharaoh, they're being raised up to do something. Mm -hmm. They are, they're like, God was glorified in a way that he'd never been glorified before by raising Pharaoh up and then casting him back down. And, and that's, we get a little peek at that. God's ways, Isaiah says, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But he does give us these little glimpses into how much higher they are. And it's like, it's enough of a glimpse for us to see 
whoa, there's a big, yeah. <laughs> there's a big gap. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the hits on uh, Reformed theology is that there's there's not a lot of room for mystery, and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I've never attended a Reformed church or anything. Mm. I just this is where I'm at because I feel like this is what mm. where the Bible would have sure. me at. And um, you know, his ways are so much higher, and we we know that. I mean, we Christians, Christians universal know that and we we subscribe to that and it has to you know we want it to be that mm-hmm. way i i need it to be that way yeah but it, that's the way it is and it's the place to right. be you know you know i think one of the other things too that i've heard so much about is you know well you know so what you're telling me when you read the when you look at the five points and the tulip and all that that people are going to be dragged kicking and screaming in mm-hmm. heaven well goodness it's it's, it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they fabricate these things because it is such an, an offense mm. sometimes. Uh, the truth. Yeah. No, you're not in charge. You know? Well, again, it's not fair. Mm. How can a good and loving God do this or do that? Here's yeah. a contrast. Uh, maybe this uh, will resonate with you. It comes out of Ephesians 2. And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And that's kind of where uh, Satan's been given. I mean, he's obviously very clever. He's obviously very smart. Um, uh, and he's obviously very powerful. And that's just not where our God's at. I mean, that Satan has those limited situations, and he can and does probably look down the course of time and try to manipulate and and does things and however it all works, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but God being sovereign is way beyond mm-hmm. all of that. And then I live in, you know, Garden of Eden is a good case of how, you know, Satan... When, when when they were left alone just a little bit, I don't know how that is alone necessarily, but God would walk with them and spend much time with them. Uh, but if Satan was allowed to do his trickery, he's mm. he's pretty he's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Right. But not sovereign or you know, all you know is now all sovereign power mm. like God. He's not omniscient, he's not Yeah, right all that and he's not omnipresent. Yeah, Job's a great description of how limited Satan actually mm-hmm. is. You know, he's like, can I do this, please? And God's three, you can do this, but don't go any farther than this. And, mm-hmm. and Satan obeys him, you know. Yeah, and, and, and then, um, you know, you, you have all of these disasters and things like that that are kind of at the hand of Satan mm-hmm. because he's been allowed to do mm-hmm. that and to take lives and change the course of their mm-hmm. existence with the, the family and, and mm-hmm. etc. So, yeah, there's, there's lots there, but when you go to our sovereign God, I mean, you'd be wanting to limit him like this, in mm-hmm. a sense, almost. Uh, he can do a lot of stuff, but eh, maybe mm-hmm. not that. Yeah, I think talking about some of the maybe natural disasters or tragedies that we see, um, and pe- people want to say, well, why would God, you know, why mm-hmm. would God allow that, or why would God do that? You know, when you get the question of, oh, well, that wasn't that wasn't God's will or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, everything is within his will. Everything is within his power, right? Mm-hmm. So does that mean that God did it? Did God do it? Or did God just allow it? You know, I think Job is, 
great for going back to to where mm-hmm. you, know, you can kind of see mm-hmm. in those instances where he does want to inflict pain mm-hmm. over people or countries or whatever it is, you know, that God will allow that to happen. But for me, that's still, you know, you peel those layers back and you get back to a, a perplexing problem of why why does God allow Satan to do anything at all? Mm. Yeah. You know, where did Satan even come from? Yeah. Where did evil come from? Like how did you know how did Satan really fall and how was that within God's plan? Mm. So sometimes I'll go back to that and then kind of struggle with, well, sure. God allows it, but and I know his purposes are this, or his will is mm. that, or his Bible, you know, the word says this, but he was pretty much in charge of that flood, though. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much completely pretty much. did that. <laughs> pretty much wanted to wipe out everyone and then decided to save a few. The distinction between allowing and actually doing doesn't necessarily remove culpability, right, in the mind of the individual, right? Because mm. allow, allowing something mm. versus yeah. you, you're, you're basically vicariously doing it. It's a proxy war. Right. Sure. So yeah. I get I get that I get that tension that happens there. I think the thing that maybe helps me a little bit um, is understanding that when God is for God, God being for Himself is the best possible outcome. So it's always for God's glory. It's always it's always about bringing Himself glory, and I think that that can be at least helpful to for, for me anyway. Um, one thing that come, uh, one thing that I was gonna say as far as um, get a little sidetracked, but um, a lot of times I, um, I feel like we tend to lean into New Testament scripture, particularly into Romans nine or like a John six four or some of that. But uh, the Psalms are filled with because you point that out, and I just jumped into I was thinking about Psalm ninety six, talking about the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Psalm, or you said Psalm 91? I said Psalm 92, 92 but yeah. Yeah, so it's Psalm 96. Uh, there's, a, there's a section after, I'll read verse 7 through verse 10. Um, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, and this is the part that I highlighted, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Mm-hmm. He will He will judge the people with equity. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. If I am in charge in any way, the world moves. That this, this to me seems even fundamentally clear. Mm-hmm. Like he's established it. Yeah. And he's he's going to judge equitably. I think that judgment has been mm. placed on Jesus for <coughs> certain people, but that judgment mm. is going to happen. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I just I, I see a lot of I see a lot of God's sovereignty yeah. come out in the Psalms yeah. if you read through them and in the in the open eyes even a little bit to mm. it. Oh it yeah. Starts popping around. Like, whoa, whoa. Well, and that's what going back to the beginning of our discussion. It's like. The Arminian argument oftentimes centers, not that there aren't verses that they'll use and, well, God still loved the world, you know, that kind of thing, like he came to save everybody. Um, It's not that they won't have their biblical arguments, but it seems the essence of the argument is more in the idea of fairness in what seems fair to them uh, in terms of, well, if, if it's not up to me in some way, 
then how is that fair? Whereas it seems like the reformed viewpoint, or, or should we just call it the God is actually sovereign viewpoint, is all throughout scripture. There are, there are certain passages where you can kind of, you can, there's mystery surrounding them. Like, what does it mean that God changed his mind when he was talking with Moses? Like Moses pleaded for the people and God changed his mind. What does that exactly mean? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. We know that God, um, that, that in the, in the course of history, God's, God's plans were not thwarted because of a really good argument by Moses. We, we know that's not the case. But we're told that his, that his mind was changed, I think maybe for the reason that God tells Abraham that Abraham is going to be one of his counselors. Like he calls Abraham a counselor. You're going to counsel me. Well, does God need counsel? No, of course not. But he doesn't need our tithes either. But he wants, he wants us to walk with him and he wants us to be cheerful givers. And, and so I think there's an issue of perspective that we can cheerfully acknowledge that, and that is that um, our perspective is finite and God's is infinite. And so we can't understand unconditional election in the way, in the way we know it to be true. We know it's true, but it's not the same thing as like being able to logically figure it all out or logically figure out that, oh, you know, has there a disaster fallen in the city? Hasn't the Lord done it? Well, Amos... Amos 3 tells us that the disaster came because the Lord caused it. But at the same time, he's, we know he's compassionate and he's a friend to the fatherless and to the widows. And, and so there is lots of mystery, but there's also like just fundamental things that we have to believe to be true. And his absolute sovereignty is one of them. I, uh, I read a sermon by Spurgeon on unconditional election this past week. And I wrote down a little quote. It's very short, but it. He says, if you love religion, he has chosen you to it. If you desire it, he has chosen you to it. If you do not, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you do not wish for? I mean, <laughs> I mean, bam, right there. You know, you're, if it's like, it's not fair that God chose you and not me. But hold it. Aren't you getting what you want? So let me ask you, do you, do, you, do you want to come to Christ? Do you want to worship Christ? Do you want to be with Christ forever, for eternity in heaven? Well, no, I don't, I don't believe in him and I hate him or whatever. Well, you're getting what, you're, you're getting what your heart desires yeah. when you think about it. Sure. And you know, in, in Romans 9, I was talking about the sovereignty and everything, and I and the context may not be specific for sovereignty, but in verse 19, uh, Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? And of course, he goes and talks about the potter and the molder. You know, Paul doesn't go off on some philosophical diatribe and mm-hmm. try to convince people, who are you? And you know, I think sometimes for me, when I talk to myself, I got to say that. Who? You know. How dare you? <laughs> somebody asked me once about How dare God me? commanding these things that, that are just very difficult to think about. The, the total inhiliation of a, of a, a group, people mm-hmm. group to include their pets and their livestock. And, and mm-hmm. I want all their artifacts out of there. And well, why would God do that? And I, I remember when I was a kid. <coughs> There was once or twice my dad told me to do something, and I said, well, why do I have to do that? And you know what he told me, right? 
because I said so. You know what? Sometimes I think that's got to be enough for us mm -hmm. because God said so, mm -hmm. and that's enough. I don't. If I need to understand everything, we're kind of right back to where we were talking about a few minutes ago. Now, now we're we're not considering a sovereign, you know, and then plug in every attribute that doesn't come at the expense of another attribute. They're all they're all equal to God because He's perfect and He's holy and all of this. You know, that's my God. That's the one whom even in my own flesh, is worthy of my worship, is worthy of everything that I can give him, and even beyond that. You know, not, not, the, not the guy who's got some, some minor chink or imperfection mm. or whatever. So who are you, old man, mm. to, to talk back to God or to even reconsider something different? Mm. That's that's a good enough reason you sometimes. Just talking to us, Ron. Just give a little. Time. <laughs> yeah. What? What's that? what yeah. you saying? <laughs> hey, you for, know, for the tape that is. Frank <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you had a, if you kind of addressing what um, Andrew mentioned just a little bit, you know, is that gonna prevent mm -hmm. me from having salvation mm -hmm. if I don't? And obviously, you would have to not. I mean, it couldn't. I mean, you can be confused and have on some issues. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, like yeah. Joe has some confusion. Yeah, that's right. He's still God's, God's still gracious. <laughs> so, I mean, if you had a church of people that gather together and they said, we have not been predestined and we want to come to Christ, then you'd be going, well, there might be a problem with this doctrine. Because all these non-predestined people are getting together and saying, we want to become believers. But it, you're right, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. But I, I think... They, they, don't wanna, they wouldn't go that way. With the right, with right preaching, with correct doctrine, they're going to end up... They're gonna, I, I, you can't avoid ending up, I think. If you have enough time, if God <laughs> allocates you enough time, yeah. you're going to end up where you need to be in Romans 9. In 2016, that Ligonier's conference, I think it was Ligonier's, I, there was a guy with, uh, I think his name was Derek. Maybe Derek Thomas? Thompson? Anyways. Oh, Derek Thomas, yeah. Thomas, yeah. He talked about, I think he talked about election being a family secret. He's like, it's it's something that you tell people about once they're in the family. Once they're in the family. But it's not something that you necessarily lead with because yeah. it is very confusing. It's yeah. like, so wait. Do I not need to do anything? Well, no, you actually do. You need to humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. And, and so, so you're, what you're going to do right now is you're going to give your heart to God and surrender your will to the king. And then after you do that, you'll, you'll find out. You'll find out. You doing that, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that though. The family secret idea, you know, just that it's, you, you get, you learn about it once you become in. So, so the people who say we're not predestined, but we want to, we want to be Christians. Well, it's like, that's a sign that they're predestined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, right. I know that's a little backwards. And then, well, you know, they asked Whitfield, they said, hey, uh, you know, what is, is Wesley going to be in heaven with you? And he said, yeah, but he's going to be so far in front of me in the line, I won't even be able to see him. You know, that's hmm. kind of, I mean, that's, that's a charitable and pastoral, I think, way to think about these mm -hmm. things, I think. Yeah. yeah. Many Arminians are still incorrect, but <laughs> some so, of these doctrinal things. So when it relates to, just because we're still, we're still talking about the context of, of you know, maybe a, a new congreg congregation, mm -hmm. I think when it relates to that, in my mind, you know, the, 
the leadership mm. and and whoever makes up like you know a biblical eldership of a church needs sure. to be solid on this. You yeah. know, and des- doesn't necessarily need to bang it on the wall every single day. But you know, like the leadership in the church needs to be solid on this and it needs to be preached, you know, at appropriate times yeah. as it comes up in the Bible. Unity is so key on that. But can people still you know worship at that church and be confused and be struggling with that? Yes, of course, mm-hmm. I would I would say. Do yeah. you think there's a would you make a distinction between attendance and membership? Yeah, because membership at that point would need to would need to adhere to certain doctrine, certain doctrinal statements, and say yeah. yes, I believe in this wholeheartedly. So you can attend. You can attend as a confused believer. I would say yes. Yeah. But could you be a professing member? No, I, I would say no. The journey of most people is obtuse in a lot of ways. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, yeah. The bottom line is You're you can hold a lot of, or be ignorant of a lot of doctrines, hmm. hold a lot of wrong doctrines, and still uh, base your salvation on the love of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ and your love for Him. Mm-hmm. And over time, God will take care of the details. Yeah, especially yeah. in a really good church. And I think ultimately the goal is if you have people who are confused on major, major doctrinal statements, is you disciple them. Mm-hmm. You try to show them the way. You try to show them the word and instruct them, and have yes. people who know what they're talking about do that. Right. So yes. yeah, I mean you have to determine you know the strata. What is what is core? Right. What is absolutely essential? And then you know, you kind of go, okay, where's the rapture in here and all of that. You you, you deal with those things. Yeah. But you know, back to what Andrew was saying, what is there? What's the demarcation between membership and just strictly attendance? So you know, I, I think that's. But it would be. Wouldn't you think it'd be a lower some some lower level for membership than for elder or deacon because it's kind of like you know if you've been divorced and you're remarried can you come to the church yes can you become a member yes can you be an elder well that's where we start having issues because you got to be the elder, you got to be the husband of one wife you know that that kind of thing so it's having membership i mean part of it would be like do you, part, part of the membership is coming under the pastoral care of the elders, of the pastor and the elders alike. Um, and so if someone wanted to come under the authority and the care of the elders, but maybe limited at home, it was just too much, you know, was, you know, they weren't radically against it, but they just weren't quite fully behind it yet. I think that there would definitely be wisdom to work through how those things go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I haven't thought so, as much about the members. something that, yeah, should be... Something we want to think about. Right. I would think if you have people joining up as members, and then members may or may not, you know, the members are potentially voting voting in elders. I don't mm-hmm. know how that would exactly would. That's how I kind of see the church body doing that. Right. Um, so you would want them on the same. Yes. On the same page. The same wavelength. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I was talking to mm-hmm. Ann this week about uh, that if something ever actually got started, that. Uh, either you guys or we, or whatever. I mean, we'd really have to have a strong, well-grounded leader mm-hmm. uh, or pastor or something. Yep. Uh, because if you flounder around too much, I mean, you're going to have guys... I mean, look what Luke's doing. He's going into a church, and if it's a mess, he's going, well, I'm not going to... I mean, this thing's not for me. I need to... 
uh, and and I would do the same. Uh, so mm. so I mean not not yeah. Uh, and I know I answered a couple of things I said, but one of the things in this church that women wouldn't be able to speak, and so that took care of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's really hard, hard and fast rule. That's actually number one yeah. in our doctrinal statement. The whole reason why we're starting this church is for that reason. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. No. At the OCRC, Luke was. Um, I, I'm assuming probably somewhere in the in the um, the dusty archives of the Presbyterian Church, they have at some point subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the you know the uh, London was it the London Baptist, London Baptist. yeah London so, Baptist or the Belgic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that confessions of faith definitely have a very helpful place in that. You know, um, I remember when we would be um, kind of a, a new elder or deacon would be taking their vows at the church we attended in Spokane, they would say, you know, the, do you subscribe uh, to the Westminster Confession of Faith? And they would say yes, with exceptions. And then they would have already detailed out what those exceptions were. And they promised that if their convictions changed and they stopped believing the general tenets of the Westminster Confession, that they would come and talk let the let the rest of the elders know so that they could transition them out if they were too egregious or just so that they would be you know understanding of it so we had a we had a guy that was in, pastoring a church who went eastern orthodox and he was very honest about it he went to the elders and they said okay you can't be a pastor here anymore <laughs> but but you know it was it was like he was it was his, it was on him to inform the elders that he was no longer with them theologically. Um, and I think that would be very key for lead- Just like you started this conversation off, Luke, leadership would have to be very unified on that. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you're not really... You're not creating something new. Right. I mean, it might be a new, you know, gal- congregation, but... Right. It's not novel. Nothing, nothing's new that, that you're going right. to say identify and adopt and you know a pledge to and all of that none of yeah. that's going to be new yeah um yeah figuring out he's probably better now. i guess yeah no it wouldn't be like i think we've started in many points talking about well there aren't any perfect churches and sure. you, you know you're going to find some kind of flaw or disagree with something and just in any church that you go in uh, you know because we're human but we don't you know we're not trying to elevate by any means, you know, ourselves above other churches or anything, but, you know, define, define what we see as most biblical and trying to pull together, I guess, you know, those, mm-hmm. those different things like, okay, statements of faith, doctrines of faith, mm-hmm. church government, you know, mm-hmm. the body, how do all those things work together? You know, cause I don't know that you necessarily wanted to say, oh, we're going to be totally Presbyterian on that, or, you know, oh, we're going to be totally CREC or whatever, mm-hmm. or right. we're going to be Baptist. You know, what are we going to do? You know, how's that going to work? Because everyone has different experiences with that. Right. And so I don't know mm-hmm. that everyone's just has one thing in mind right. when it comes to some of those topics. Sure. I do think that, you know, the church body and having, you know, the elders be, you know, the church governing body basically. Most most of us, I think, are in agreement that biblical eldership is the right way to go with that, and yeah. there's obviously a lack of that in some of the local localities here, which you wouldn't want to mm-hmm. 
And just to clarify what you, you're talking about the elder rule. Elder so rule. it's not like the CEO with his board. Right. It's, it's a group of men who, yeah. who are, right. I, I think that's, the, that's, and I'm, I'm fully on, right. in agreement with you there. It's like, there's the business model of church where you have your CEO and then they've got a board that hires and fires and advises the CEO pastor. And then what is, I'm persuaded and Luke is persuaded is more biblical is the Presbyterian which just means elder rule, presbyteries, or it just just means rule by elders, um, where they're basically it's it's the American way. It's a d, and it's a no consolidation of power in one in one guy. So, mm-hmm. and you may lean on the pastor right for more guidance in certain topics, but ultimately, right everyone is making decisions. As the the elder board is yeah right. Council, there is no perfect. You know the Bible says says you know. The church is made up of people, and, you know, Paul says, I'm confident that he who has begun that work will carry on to the day of perfection, perfection in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. The church will be, you know, God, the, he's going to be, Christ can be presented with a spotless bride. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's going to happen before, you know what right. I mean, mm-hmm. before the perusia or whatever. I don't think that's going to happen. I think sure. we just, our desire... I'm talking like I'm kind of in it, but you know, we, desi- we want you to be. Well, the desire, the desire is. Yeah. This is where we want to be because right. that's where we belong. Sure. But you know, it's going to be just steady growth and steady progress. Yeah. In yeah, and in in order to attract an actual pastor who has been called to the pastoral role, you know, not that, not that, because um, I. I think you, I mean, I think we all agree that you need to, that's a role that you need to be called to. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to have something like that, we would, you know, need to have, we would need to have a core of, you know, of idea of like identity of like, who are we? What, what do, what do we, what are we okay with? What are we not okay with? What are our hills to die on in our areas of kind of showing, you know, some, some uh, kind of just grace with one grace with one another in terms of differences and convictions. Um, and then, you know, do we have a place that a pastor could actually be <laughs> support a family? And, you know, is there enough of us to support, support a pastor? Uh, because obviously the majority of the elder, the elders are, they're just giving their time, but the, the one who, who delivers the word, he's, you know, the, the, his, the worker's worthy of his wages and you gotta, you gotta pay the preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing to, to consider to be thinking about.